Welcome back to another episode of State of the Art. You can always follow us at State of the Art on Instagram or Twitter. You can find me at GabeBC on pretty much everything. I'm really excited about today's episode with Greg Gage, one of the founders of Backyard Brains, a DIY neuroscience company. And if you don't know what DIY neuroscience is, don't worry, we're going to explain it on this episode. But basically, he runs a company where you can buy kits to do neuroscience at home. Um, We're going to go into some detail on these type of kits and how he got started in the first place. But we talk about cyborgs, creating art with machines, and even controlling cockroaches with your phone. So if that sounds interesting to you, stick around. You can always email me at gabe at thestateoftheart.org if you have some suggestions for guests or if you want to talk about last week's episodes. Uh, We have a really exciting season planned for the next couple uh, months for you, so stay tuned. But with uh, no further ado, let's welcome Greg Gage, the co-founder of Backyard Brains, to the podcast. Welcome, Greg. I think the last time I saw you, you were like uh, electrifying my arm at a hotel in Vancouver. Exactly. No, that's just just things I like to carry around with me just in case. You never know. So (laughs) So let's get started. Um, I guess, how would you describe Backyard Brains as someone who's never heard of it before? Yeah, I think we are a, uh, we we call it DIY neuroscience uh, company, but like neuroscience is one of those fields that no one really feels as a kind of a DIY area. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of makes it a little bit unique and interesting in that way. Uh, So we try to democratize uh, expensive and complex lab equipment to make it uh, kind of available to the general public. And the analogy we use is like the, in astronomy, it's like, if you wanted to look through a telescope, the equivalent would be, you'd have to, okay, you can do that, but you have to go to grad school for six years and dedicate your life. And then you get access to a telescope. which is really what neuroscience was like, because uh, the only way you could actually record from the brain is to become a neuroscientist and dedicate your life and all that type of stuff. And so we're trying to come up with a way to do kind of a cheap telescope uh, for kids uh, that kind of gets you – know, you get decent data out of it. You can actually publish with it, um, but it at least gives them exposure at an early enough age where you can kind of maybe steer their decisions of which way they're going to go with their lives. And so that's – yeah, when I say DIY neuroscience, that's what I mean. Is it's kind of like this trying to democratize the the big si- big sciences <laughs> uh, and, and try to make it available for for everyone. So you're sort of like hacking neuroscience in a way. Yeah, in a way, yeah. I mean, so it's like the uh, what we're trying to do is is create um, yeah the, the, the equipment that can replicate what is being done in a neuroscience lab. And so some of it is, is hacking because uh, I think constraints like financial constraints uh, like make for creativity. Right. So I think um, if I worked at Apple, I would love to be on the, the, sh- the shuffle, the iPod shuffle team, hmm. because like it's uh, I think it's much harder and much more creative to do something extremely low cost than it is to do something extremely high cost, right? So like uh, given the latest, you know, iPhone that came out, you can just stick anything in there because money is really not an object. But if it, once it becomes a constraint, then you have to be creative in how you come up with solutions. And so we've been sort of doing that over and over for the past 10 years, which has been um, kind of fun. So we're figuring out ways to replicate certain types of electrodes or, you know, recording equipment. So the, the, the original hack was uh, most units that record your brain have to have a computer on there and have to be able to digitize everything that's going on. And so we really, like that was right around the same year as the cell phones started coming out, these, these, these smartphones. And so we realized that this thing actually has a computer inside of it and we can actually digitize. And so the hack would be to plug it into your headphone jack and use the phone to record everything and reduce the cost significantly for the device that's actually recording it. So, and when you say plug uh, it in, what do you mean plugging into the phone? Uh, so there's a, um, so when you listen to the brain or you listen to the output of the brain through your muscles, it actually creates, uh, a, a sound. And so, um, it's an electrical signal that if you fed that electrical signal into a speaker, you can hear it. And so it turns out that a microphone on the on the phone is doing the exact same thing. It's listening for your voice and it's turning that into an electrical signal. And so if you just plugged it into the electric the microphone jack and sent in that electrical signal, it thinks it's something that it's you're talking, but it's actually 
hooked up to a device that's recording from your brain. Hmm. And you can hear the popping and the sizzling of neurons as they're being communicated or kind of like your your muscles kind of uh, sending that electrical signal right there. And so they all get turned into like an almost an audio file uh, and they get sent in to record. But that audio is really how neuroscientists record the brain. So we, when I was in a research lab, we would have you know, animals with 81 wires put inside of their brains. And each thing was like a little microphone recording what was it listening to, right? And so that electrical signal is how our brains uh, communicate. And so we're just kind of eavesdropping in on that and then sort of sending that to the to the phone to to record it for, for future analysis and for publications. <laughs> Kids are going to be sending it right from their phones directly to nature. And so that's, that's the goal. So that'll be like the future of TikTok is that's kids the sending their, yeah, yeah. their brains. Kids on the subway, you know, cramming for their finals, like doing recordings and stuff like that and when submitting you, it. So. When you do this with kids, though, obviously you're not sticking wires into kids' brains, right? Like, how are you sending those signals so that they can understand? Yeah, so it's, we do it with two different ways. So with, with insects, we can. So um, things like, like cockroaches and worms, uh, we work with them a lot. And, and the reason why is that they have what's called an exoskeleton. And so we have bones, like, in the middle, like, in our arms. But they, these guys have kind of crunchy shells on the outside. But on the inside, they're all mushy. And so uh, what you can do is you can just – take a really small pin, just kind of poke it through the, uh, the exoskeleton and you can touch those neurons and you can get beautiful signal, uh, from these neurons kind of popping, um, to understand how the neurons inside of an insect works. But you're right in a, in a human, it's hard. It would be possible. You could drill into a, someone's head, put the <laughs> same wire in there and you should be able to record the brain. And we, we would never recommend that or do that. Right. But, so what we do is another it's sort of a biohack. Uh, this is a way that you can use what the brain has already evolved with to kind of show how it works. So one of the things that we do is record from the output of the motor cortex. So we have a little strip in our brain right here, right a little bit closer towards the front from your ear. That's really controlling all of your movements, right? And so like you're, you know, and then each part of the strip of the brain has more control over you know for example hand function versus your back you can't really control your back that much and so and so what you can do is you can take those neurons and depending on where you put your electrodes if i put my electrodes right here for example i could record the output of the neuron that's re responsible for moving my arm this way and you'd be able to hear it and see it and be able to understand what's going on yeah greg has uh, some electrical hookups on your arm right now is that what's going on <laughs> you're showing us yeah yes i, I could show you I, I i can do I, I was doing like i just did my daughter's um it was like a thing where you had to like talk about what your dad does for a career or your mom does for a career <laughs> yeah. and so i i just had mine about about 10 minutes ago so i'm still hooked up so i i can show you just to, for your audience that are listening in. Yeah, so you're gonna. Greg is now taking something out of a box here, a bunch of wires. Yeah, so I'm gonna I, I'm gonna hook it up because now I realize that I've I had those those stickers on. I had forgotten about that. So for the, you know, for completeness, I'm gonna I'm gonna record the output of my motor cortex, and we're gonna listen to what it sounds like, so you can get an idea. And, and you've got you know. So we're gonna be able uh, to actually hear it right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll plug it in. So, so he's plugging in his arms right now. To, yeah. So there's a little. This is what we. So this little kit right here is what replaces big racks of equipment in a in our lab, and it just all it is. It's it's like um, it's called a bioamplifier. So it takes like many things in science. We have to make things bigger. So like you're familiar with microscopes that make um, really really small cells big enough sure. so that we can see. Telescopes make distant planets big enough so we can see it. I don't know. You're familiar with PCR and making DNA big enough to replicate it so you can see it. So, <laughs> uh, so this is the same thing, but it's taking very small amounts of electricity that are inside of your neurons and just amplifying it a bunch of times so you can hear it. So we have a speaker on here. And what's what's so actually in this box that you're showing? And I'm taking a video of this too so people can see it on our social media. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's, this is just a, it's, I'm trying to explain. So this is an amplifier that's basically got a little microphone on there looking for the signals coming in. And I've just placed the electrodes on my arm. And these electrodes are just really saltwater stickers that have a little bit of uh, gel in there um, that allows the electricity to flow from my arm into this metal uh, little like chip right clip. there. 
and then the electrical the electrical signal comes down the electrical wires into here and then this guy has a really really small signal coming from the neurons and it just amplifies it and then on the back it's got a big speaker so then you can blast it out what it's going to pick up so i'm going to turn it on so sort of like a uh, boom box for your muscles like a boom box for biology (laughs) so if i turn this on you can start to hear that so this is and that's you bending your arm yes as i bend my arm you get that type of uh that sounds that is actually the so this is one step away this is the biohack because this is not my brain this is so my brain if i could if i could record it there'd be a neuron right here firing and it would cross over and synapse on my spinal cord and then come out to my arm and then it would hit a muscle and then what i'm listening to is one synapse away so it's from here to here and then from th- from there to here so it's two synapses so from, from your brain. brain to your spinal cord and then just, yeah, yeah so a synapse is just where two cells touch mm-hmm. um they don't like touch they get really really close and it sort of it's, the information flows that way and so when you're listening to it you can just hear this type of sounds and so this is a probably a number of, of neurons that are that we're recording from um but you can also uh when you're recording you can you can move the electrodes really close together and get a single neuron that's communicating to another neuron and to me that's the most beautiful sound you get to hear the popping sound of what what is reality you know if you think about everything that you know every you know your, your first kiss the smell of your grandmother's basement all that stuff is being captured by these by the weight of these of these synapses, these these neurons communicating, it's just really cool to be able to see that in real time and, and actually manipulate it. So you can understand a little bit about how the brain starts to starts to move to in order to uh, to start creating these memories. And what were the reactions like? I mean, you just said you came from your uh, kids' school. How do kids respond to something like this when you show it to them? Yeah, it's funny. So. Uh, uh, we used to start in fifth grade because that was where kids learned about cells and a little bit about electricity. Um, and so that seemed to be like a good spot for us. But I, I just did a first grade classroom for my daughter. And the and the questions that came back were pretty, pretty interesting. So they were asking me about um, – or some of the questions. So one, one kid was asking me about uh, – you know, what else has a brain? So they're going through the class and they were trying to figure out what has a brain and what doesn't. And they mm. instantly knew, they knew that a tree didn't have a brain and they knew the tree was alive, but didn't have a brain. And they knew that, you know, rocks obviously didn't have a brain. So they're going through and, they're, and, they, and they figured out that what has a brain is basically everything that moves. Uh, and so that's a good indicator of what the brain does. And so then they were, they kind of got it. So I was showing them another demo. I showed them like the, and I recorded on the screen so they could see the spikes that were happening inside my arm. Um, and then we did another demo of plugging in the, um, uh, the device to a, a plastic hand that I had. I hear it is right here. <laughs> a little DIY yeah. hand. And then when I move my hand, it would send the electricity from my brain into there and sort of cause it to close and open back up again. So as my hand was moving, this thing was going. So then that got them really going. And I think I, I'm pretty sure I'll find out tomorrow, but <laughs> When, when my daughter comes back and tells me what she learned, the uh, uh, I think I think they pretty much got it. So I think this this type of stuff. Our, my philosophy of having to be a certain age may be wrong. So I may mean, have to update that. So yeah, you probably are definitely the coolest dad to present things to them, and on the teacher. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, you know, sometimes when you I notice when I talk to young young classes, um, you kind of get this group think where where someone will ask a question uh, about a dream they had and then the next 30 questions be about a dream that you right <laughs> just going to like, <laughs> can't, can't like leave that train Freud, you know describing the like, why why are you feeling this anyway but no i think the i think we're slowly uh making an indent so we started the company about 10 years ago uh when i was still a grad student with my lab mate tim marzullo and our big conference that we still present at is, is society for neuroscientists so it's about forty thousand people show up about 30,000 neuroscientists. Um, and so over the years, uh, we've been getting people that would stop by at our, at our poster. And then, it, then we had a, now have a booth and they, and we hear over and over again about students that have went to grad school because of backyard brands. Wow. It kind of feels cool. Like people carrying a poster of new research and out, you know, who knows what findings will be in there. 
go kidney turns off. Um, because of because of what happened with uh, Backyard Brains. So it's kind of kind of neat. And what was the first kit that you created as part of Backyard Brains? Yes, yeah, so the first one we did was in. It was a. Uh, we did it as a, almost like a satire uh, for the for uh, this big conference, the mm-hmm. Society for Neuroscience Conference. And the the kind of the joke was uh, the lab that we were in would, would produce these um, probes for research, and so because they're for research, they're not that many customers, right? There's not going to be people like lining up like for the new like I don't know Android phone launches. People sure. lined up around, but. For a, for an electrode to put in the brain, you can count on your hands how many people need that, right? So the uh, so those end up costing over you know thousand dollars just for a small electrode to put into the brain, and so um, when we were in grad school, we decided, all right, well you know I, I'm an engineer, I, I can see how you can build. So we like why does it need to cost that much, right? So we were thinking about this idea of, of democratizing it, and so. We presented it as a poster uh, for this for this conference, but uh, understanding that if you just made a poster about a single channel bioamplifier for recording outreach activities, that that's not going to get anyone's attention. Yeah, maybe a little dry. Yeah, yeah, maybe one or two people stop by, but we presented it as the solution for the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> and the reason why we felt justified is that it's true that if it was if there was a zombie apocalypse. Uh, it would have to be a neurological disorder, right? It, it means affecting the zombies' behavior changes. And so the behavior we know arises from the brain, and they're still alive. So therefore, the brain technically is probably still alive. So if you could do some research on that, maybe you can save your loved ones. But the problem would be all of the neuroscience companies have been turned into zombies. And so the only way that you could solve that is to go to Radio Shack, break into it at night, steal some components, you know, go to the hardware store, steal some wood, and then build a contraption that would record the brain. So that was the how we launched the the idea of the company. And it turns out that that insane way of describing the product may have actually turned what what is no doubt just kind of a one-off fun thing to do uh like a little bit of a hipster thing <laughs> kind of showing off like, hey look at this cool thing we made but we got um we got a big crowd around it and then we got journalists that stopped by and someone from the journal nature came by and and did a little article on us and we, we actually got on their podcast uh and so we were able to get a larger kind of following uh based around this this stupid idea and i remember being in the lab and you know, working hard every day, publishing, like trying to get data so I could publish these papers and realizing like this, this paper that I spent over three years on just my, my poured my heart and soul into it. And we finally got it out. And it was a like a, a really well-respected high journal paper. And I maybe got one person that sent me an email mm-hmm. and it was a friend of mine just, Hey man, I saw your paper, but this stupid little side project I was working on, I would get like two or three emails a day from people like, Hey, that's really cool what you're doing, you know, trying to democratize that. I'd like to buy one of those. And then it just slowly you, you realize that maybe in life, like the side project could actually be the real project. And so, yeah, at some point, and it's funny cause I was also studying the dopamine system in the brain, mm-hmm. which is about the, like, how do you know, feedback, positive feedback, change the choice of future behaviors. Right. So it's like, I'm getting all these like emails from this, side project that are kind of encouraging it and then yeah once we took the plunge and realized hey we could actually try to do this we, then we signed up for uh some entrepreneurship classes because uh, i didn't really know much about it and uh a number of uh actually uh, some very funny stories about going out to pitch to venture capitalists on the idea of a of a cockroach recording kit, right? And so... Yeah, and I want to talk about the cockroach recording kit. I mean, first of all, it's interesting that storytelling seems to be your entryway into this this field. Like, uh, do you have a background in storytelling? I mean, have you always been interested in telling stories or... Yeah, not really. I mean, I think it's uh, growing up. I was always I was never I never took myself too seriously. And I think as I think that that was a big refreshing change, I think, for many scientists is to see scientists not not take themselves seriously. so that uh, that was my fifth year of doing satirical posters so we had four years before that and each one was kind of making fun of 
ourselves or some research technique, um, but we would always present it as if it was real and then uh, let people kind of figure out the joke for themselves. And then I think that building that up over four years uh, uh, allowed for that. I think that the the presentation of the of the spiker box is what we did at that last one kind of to take off. And I, in fact, we got in a lot of trouble over that. Did I tell you a story that we almost got kicked out of grad school? No, for, is this the cockroach piece or? No, it's something else. So this, so we had, um, so Tim and I, my, my lab mate, would, mm-hmm. would have this, we had a lot of fun. So we would always do, we'd always enter in an abstract. So the, like in the way these conferences work in these big sense, so like you have an abstract that's due like in March or April and the conference isn't until, until like October, November. So you have a long time between when you submit what you're going to do and, and what's going to c- come out. And so uh, the very first one, we, we were joking around about how some of these fMRI papers, which was a really popular thing, that's where you put you put yourself in a scanner and you uh, people are recording your brain activity through the blood flow and then coming back out to what's going on uh, and saying, well, if this part of the brain lights up, then this must be controlling that. So we did one on the stock U.S. stock market, and the hmm. joke was that we used the same statistical techniques that were used in in some of these early fMRI papers that didn't do a correction that you're supposed to do. And so we found these spurious correlations between the neural recordings of my rats over three weeks at the U.S. <laughs> stock market. So we had the poster was looking at you know Coca-Cola prices with right. the firing rates of rats over three weeks and then we shifted it by a day we predicted tomorrow and then we had like I think the final figure was showing like the price of a of a portfolio increasing depending on the and we still get so we published that is this like an absurdist yeah. idea though or there was there some kind of correlation you could find so so the re, so the reason why so the so the idea of this isn't a teaching section of the of the conference and the reason why i like doing this is that people will laugh at it at first but then they realize, holy crap, you know, that's what we're, I mean, like that same technique that we did to show that the rats control the stock market is the same technique that was being done in, in neuroscience papers. And they didn't take the, the, what's the statistical significance, which is called the P value and divide it through by the number the square root of the number of, of voxels that they were looking at. And so when you don't do that, you get these things that become significant when they're not. And so that was like that. Mm. So the take home message was, was something a little bit deeper but the ridiculous part was was what's there, right? And so then we published that in the Annals of Improbable Research. Uh, so that was that uh, journal that comes out of I think it's MIT or Harvard, I can't remember. Um, uh, but they uh, they do the Ig Nobel Prize every year mm-hmm. for some some something like this, like a paper that that makes you laugh and then think next, right? So they uh, so we did that for four years, and then what? Then last year we had a new chair of our program, um, in the neuroscience program. And they were like, oh, I wonder what our students are going to present this year. So they type it in the computer and they came across an abstract, which was uh, from from Tim and I. And we actually had two other authors on it. We were going to pass the torch and give it off to someone else. I was kind of done with grad school at that time. And it was about uh, this this idea of in science, we have to um, – you always have to make it related to humans no matter what. And it's kind of a, a, like a larger story, which is – most of funding from science comes from the National Institutes of Health. The National Institute of Health is interested in human health, uh, uh, and basic research does not get much uh, love, right? So, so to, uh, everything has to be kind of translucent. So, th- so the joke was that every abstract that even I would write, I would, I'm just recording from rats looking in the striatum, but I would have to say, you know, like Tourette's syndrome is a horrible disease. It affects x number of people you know solve this we're going to look it's like even though that was not in anywhere in the forefront of my mind mm-hmm. it's good just to do research for research sake you have to tell the story so we did one about how the this not signaling was responsible for all the global conflicts that were going on in <laughs> afghanistan because oh, no we not signaling in order to go through this huge thing and so then that must have angered yeah, them so, yeah so the so he wrote an email to the entire department and 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 scolded us and tried to kick us out of the and made us made the other students retract the paper so if you listen if you ever find that that podcast that i was like we never used our university name because we were kind of upset that they didn't us to do this, this other satirical thing that we were not going to give them the credit on this new one. So that kind of subs it up. So you've, you've, have you gotten in trouble a lot for your work? 
I'm kind of curious because there's obviously yeah, some I mean, questions. It, it is controversial because there's a there's a push to to move away from animal research. Right. Um, and you do you use animals, but you only use in, use cockroaches and worms. Yeah, we use invertebrates. I mean, to get around like, like the uh, I mean, and we we do like I I will defend our ethics all day long because if you look at if you compare the amount of suffering that goes on because of neurological disorders and diseases, um, I think. The uh, what we do is we we use cockroaches and our and our biggest prep is to take a leg off of a cockroach, a living leg off of a living cockroach. And so uh, we understand that that could cause pain for the insect. But we can also look to nature to find out what is what is what happens in nature. And there's all these studies that have gone in like many going back hundreds of years uh, that would look or at least 100 years uh, that looks at collecting bugs in the wild and their legs often get torn off because they have this, this a ref, it's a, a, a spot where they can, you know, if they get bitten by something, they can pull that leg off and continue to run. And they, and the cockroaches can run at full speed, even with five legs, even with four legs. And so there's uh, evolutionary speaking, they've kind of designed to kind of lose legs. And so we did a careful study about five years ago and we looked to find the proper way to remove a leg and as we used to cut it off and now we now we just pull it because we found that nature has to solve this for us you just kind of gently tug on it and the leg will come off the cockroach will stay alive and over a period of two molts it will actually grow a new leg again so this is kind of a green process and you also anesthetize the cockroaches right and we anesthetize the cockroaches. So we don't know if they feel pain. I, I, I suspect they do. I suspect they have uh, some feeling about the world and, and possibly do infect pain. So we, in, the, in an abundance of caution, we just assume that they do. And so we always will anesthetize them and care for them when they wake back up again. Uh, but if you watch them, um, they tend to do the exact same things other cockroaches do. So they they eat and eat, drink and have sex and do all everything <laughs> just fine. In fact, we have a container we call Shady Acres. That's our retirement community. So when a cockroach oh, no. gives up leg, uh, they live there and they kind of regrow more more cockroaches for us in the future. So that's the. <laughs> and why are you ripping cockroach legs off? Exactly? So because what you need to do in order because like the the thing about neuroscience, which is makes it hard, I think, is that the brain has to be alive. Unlike you know. Like you may have done dissections with frogs in schools or and you and a lot of things you can inspect in science. You can look at it and understand how it works. You can understand by looking at a heart that it's a muscle in a in a sphere and it looks like it could pump blood if it's squeezed at certain spots, right? Or if you look at the lungs, they look like empty bags. You can imagine them filling up and then but if you look at the brain, it's just a piece of fat, right? And so the in order to study it, you have to, it has to be alive. It has to be communicating. And so the, the weird thing about invertebrates, uh, I'm not sure if it's true for all invertebrates, but at least with insects, is that the they can breathe kind of through their skin. They don't, don't have lungs like we do. So they just have what's called spiracles, little holes on their legs. and or Actually, they're on their chest, but they they all open up these these valves to allow oxygen to kind of flow into the, into the body and they exchange it with carbon dioxide. And so because of that, you can take the leg off and there's a little hole there and that leg will stay alive for, you know, days. Um, and then those neurons that are inside of it don't know that they've been removed. Um, and so they'll continue to do their job. And so it's really about perfect prep for a student to understand how the brain works because they can put pins in the leg and record that neuron as it's sending information back up the uh, to the body. And so... Yeah, then you can sit there and touch little hairs, and each hair on the leg will have a, a neuron in it, and you'll hear this beautiful popping sound, like this, like, like, like uh, it just sounds like, uh, I don't know, like rain on a, on a tin roof, that kind of, like, like, individual drops of things. And so then, that's how our brains work, and so that's why we do that one. And, and the other one we do is kind of controversial, is this is a uh, a cyborg cockroach. And that's to talk about the other things. So one thing is to record. So um, the uh, the stuff that Elon Musk was doing, a demo a couple weeks ago, uh, was recording. So they had sort of pigs implanted with, uh, with electrodes. And that's just recording the brain activity and sending it to a device to send it to a computer. It's very similar to that demo I just did in the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so... Uh, the other half of that is talking to the brain, is, is kind of sending information back in. So you have to write to the brain using electricity as well. 
And so uh, our version of the educational prep for that was a little backpack that you put on the cockroach that talks to the cockroach by sending in electrical commands to the backpack, which goes into the antenna. And it turns out that when you do that, the cockroach will think that it's feeling something on one of the sides of the of the uh, antenna and will tend to turn in the other direction. And so, uh, and if you can do that repeatedly, you can get a cockroach to walk around your desk in the way that you want him to. Uh, and by understanding how that's possible, you've actually learned a great deal about what, what it means to have a brain machine interface and how, do, how does electricity talk to the brain. Um, and what are the, like what ways can you do that? So the student will select like different frequency patterns that you can talk to, and they find out pretty quickly that the frequencies that what we use in hospitals, like for doing deep brain implants, um, are the exact same ones that work on the cockroaches, and mm. it's not a surprise because these neurons are the same between the cockroaches and the humans, right? And how are they sending the signal from, I guess, from a device to the cockroach itself? Yes, yeah, yeah. So this was the we had a Kickstarter on it. It was pretty, it was pretty controversial. We we're, we we're kind of on the edge of being kicked off all the time. So, uh, yeah. So the I'll tell you the original one's even cooler. So the, we did a. We had a student project where we had uh, students sort of look at all the different ways that we can do remote control insect. So I'll, I'll even back up one step further that when I was in grad school, there was a research project funded by DARPA, which is the defense um, yeah, military, military. Yeah. research, yeah, the big guys, right? So the they made a cyborg cockroach in the lab beneath ours uh, at grad school. So it's not, it wasn't like an original idea, but it was – a multi-million dollar grant given to a handful of people to do that. And, and the theory was that, well, wouldn't it be cool if we can democratize not just the recording, but also democratize this advanced DARPA project that was, you know, for the, for the select 0.001%, right? So the, uh, so that's where the idea sort of spawned from. And then we did, we, and then we, again, the constraints create the creativity. And so we were looking at ways that we could figure out how to get a remote control onto a cockroach. And so what we found was through the help of some students is that there's this little uh, hex bot, which had a R RF control device that when you would push the right, it would walk to the right and press the left, it would walk to the left. And so we took apart that guy and we found the little circuit board that would control the motors inside of there was actually light enough to, to put on the back of a cockroach. So then what we had to do is figure out how to turn the signal that turned on the motors and turn it into a signal that the brain can, can listen to. And so we put, we made a little small, the first ones were made out of paper because they were light, we made a little small circuit board that sat on top of the toy and then that one would would send it into a command that the brain understands, which are these these 55 hertz pulses. Uh, and then, sure enough, it worked. Uh, and so it it worked in the basement of Tim for the very first time, and then it's worked ever since. So that was the original idea. And then we did a Kickstarter once we got out of the prototype phase and tried and we realized that this when Bluetooth Low Energy came out, you can use your phone as remote control, and then we send the command from the phone over Bluetooth to the cockroach and then the cockroach has a small computer on there that turns that command into these signals that, that the brain can read. So it's an so app basically to control a living cockroach. And it, and it still is. It was the world's first commercially available cyborg in the history of mankind. I'm quite, I'm quite proud of that, but it's uh, it still is the only commercially available cyborg in the history of mankind. So uh, yeah, for 99 bucks, you could do your, uh, and we don't do the surgery for you. So it's a part of the ethical, agreement that we made to make the animals not be a toy is we have to allow for the user to understand the full process on how to do that. And so that's, uh, again, it goes down to our, our ethical statement is that we don't want to treat these, these insects or uh, our animals as just objects, right? So we have to treat them with respect and we have to, in order to do an experiment, you have to at least invest the hours it would take to understand what you need to do. And uh, what's what's going on now? What are you working on these days? Yeah, so right now I'm, I'm kind of uh, – so the we started the company about 10 years ago, and we've started just with, you know, crunchy and squishy things to, like, invertebrates. And the reason why we started with that is because you cannot bring animals, like the stuff I was working on, rats, because you need a license to do that type of stuff. And I think it's – you can cause a lot of harm by, by getting students to do surgeries. And so, so we didn't want that. So the – it turns out that insects, because of, um, you know, uh, 
we have people that come and spray for bugs all the time. So the, the killing of bugs is completely cool in our society. And so they don't look at bugs as the same way as they look at a cat or a dog, right? So the idea was trying to find an animal that we could use that that would be less uh, cared for. So we tried to find the, I mean, I think if we could record from a mosquito, <laughs> that would have been, everyone would be happy with that because everyone slaps mosquitoes, right? But the cockroach, I think everyone steps on a cockroach and we felt that was a good one. Uh, yeah, so we started with that, and then we moved up through the, the the crunchy and squishy things we call those. Those are invertebrates. To we jumped over all the animals right to the human because the human can do some amazing things, right? So they we can record from the muscles. Uh, that's they call the electromyogram or the EMG. That's what I just showed you just now. You can record across the eyes, like you know, that's your electrooculogram, so you can get an idea of the position of the eye. Uh, you can record from your brain, your EEG. You can record from your heart, your EKG or ECG, depending which country you're in. Um, and each one of these can can be a powerful signal, and you can use them to hack things with. And so we do a lot with kind of brain machine interfaces. What happens when you bring that those signals from the body into a small computer or wearable computer? Uh, you know, we had we work a lot with artists, um, and so we had a guy in France that was like, oh, so he, he realized that he could uh, detect an eye blink just by putting electrodes near his eye, and he put a small camera on his glasses, and every time his eye would blink, he would take a picture, and at the end of the day, he could review everything that he missed throughout <laughs> the day by looking at these videos of his, his uncaptured life from his eyes, uh, and, I, and I like that because I feel like we, we don't think about that at all. We don't think about what's missing because our consciousness fills in the gaps so well. It seems like one continuous experience, right? But they're actually very, very discreet uh, segments that we just kind of stitch together. And so like, uh, which is why all these optical illusions work. These optical illusions work because of hacks that your brain is doing to keep the story all together, right? So we don't notice when our eyes zip back and forth. If we did, we'd get sick to our stomachs having to keep track of all that. So our brain just kind of turns that off and the consciousness pops back on as soon as your eye moves back, right? So, uh, and there's, again, like a lot of these things can turn into optical illusions, which you can then find out, aha, so the brain actually isn't perceiving reality, it's perceiving something like reality and trying to make the best it can to do that. So anyway, so that's, the second phase was on humans, and now we're getting into more robotics and trying mm -hmm. to understand how does, um, you know, how, how can you create uh, an artificial brain? And, so, and I think that's the real kind of path forward for neuroscience, in, in my opinion, at least in philosophy, is if we can create a brain using computers um, that does what the human brain does, then I would I would argue that we've kind of figured out what the brain does, right? If we can create something that has something similar to what we do, um, so that's where it is. So we have, so we're doing that again for kids, and so we have a robot, um, which is called a, a vertibot. So it's like a, it's 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 mimicking a vertebrate brain, and it has two cameras on there that's looking at eyes, and, and then instead of having a program that's sort of listening for things and, and you know, if it sees a, a dog, then do this, right? Instead of doing that, what we have is that the program is, is made out of neurons and the neurons will fire at different frequencies and you wire these neurons together. And one of the outputs of the neuron is a motor. And so every time it receives a spike, it will turn the motor a little bit, right? And so then the question is, can you arrange neurons on this robot to make it do behaviors? And it turns out that you only need if you want a robot to follow you around the room, um, you only need four neurons to do that. You need mm. two neurons to look at the eyes and they, they cross over and then they can feed back to the, to the motor and then you can get a robot to follow you around, which is kind of cool. So wow. then we look to see how we can sort of create more and more advanced versions of that brain. So it's a bit like Westworld, if you've ever seen that. It's like trying to create you know, consciousness in, in a certain sense. I mean, I don't think we'll ever have consciousness in our robots. Uh, I think... The current theories look like you need neuromorphic hardware, hardware that more represents the actual neurons in our brains in order to get that. But the, but you could create uh, really complex behaviors that that would be hard to discern from a program how that works. But you can actually look at the neurons and understand how this thing is working because I think our brains are so incredibly complex that building simple models 
will be a good way to understand how the complexity of our brain actually is, has evolved. Well, I wanted to ask you that too, also, because there's so much going on with machine learning and art right now. And I know that's an interest of yours too. Yes, Where do you see yeah. this sort of going in the future? I feel like there, there's something that happened this summer. And it, it happened about 10 years ago when I started Backyard Brains with Tim. There was like a, a, a glitch in the matrix. There's something weird happened around you know, 2007, 2008, where the iPhone came out. The 3D printer came out, the Arduino came out, and all of a sudden you had all the tools you needed to actually do something with that, right? And to actually produce a crappy device like ours, like at, at low cost. <laughs> you, never, you had to do it with millions before, right? Uh -huh. Now you can do it with tens. So that was kind of, the, I, I call it kind of a glitch in the matrix. And then with AI, AI has been moving pretty steadily. Um, uh, and I think it's been making some progress. But I think this summer, something else happened that kind of, got me to listen in and that was with these la these natural language processing models have been doing some extremely creative things which i didn't think would be available for another 10 years and i'm still not sure how it's going to work out but i'll explain it just really briefly i'm not an expert in this but i, I do know that the uh these language processing models are all you're doing is you're giving like a, a, a it's like you're autocomplete in gmail like where you, as you're typing and you Suggest the line. Somebody has to say about a party. Oh, I'd love to attend. You just sure. click the button. Oh, that was easier for me. I didn't have to think about that, right? But it knows because it's seen, you know, millions of emails that when you get an email like that, this is the most likely response for that, right? And so, uh, so that's what these language processing models are doing. They're they're trying to predict the next word given a series of words before it. And it turns out that if you if you expand that not just on emails but on every work of fiction ever written you know if you go through the library of congress if you take every web page on the internet and you take every page on wikipedia and you train these models to do that it doesn't just give you like yes or no or i'd love to do that it actually will spit out series of paragraphs <laughs> and what ends up happening is that those paragraphs started becoming very very creative and so there's a couple parameters in there that you can tweak to get the set the the kind of the the probability level, which is kind of they call it the heat, the, the how how hot do you want the responses? If you want them really creative, then you set the heat high. If you want them to be very kind of textbook boring, you set it low. If you want a mystery novel, you kind of set it in the middle. So mostly it's boring, but every once in a while there's a twist. Uh, and so, what has been happening over the last few you know months has been absolutely blowing me away because I you know when people first talk think about AI, they go they're going to come for you know, the the driver jobs, like with the driverless vehicles, they're going to come for, you know, uh, manufacturing jobs with robots, stuff like that. But, you know, I'll be I'll be safe because I, I do creative writing for a living. Right. No know? one's coming I, for the I, artists quite no yet. No one's coming for the artists, but, I, but I, I feel like for the first time ever, uh, and the paper that came, they actually, what, what the paper did, uh, this is from a group called OpenAI uh, based in San Francisco. And the the third version of this of this thing that they came out with came out in like June of this year. And in that paper, they, they show uh, art. So they, they show poetry being written. And you can feed in a poem written by, you know, let's say Edgar Allan Poe. And then you give it another title and you say, this is also Edgar Allan Poe. And what's the next word? So it figured out that the title, the author, and the poem were all related. And now it saw another title and author. And so it knows now... From the first example that the poem has to be about the title in the style of the author and so on the next poem it's going to generate a completely brand new poem that was never written before about the subject of the title in the style of the author and so it's absolutely blowing me away that this can be done and so then uh, and what they showed in this study was that it's almost impossible to from a human to detect if you see two poems side by side and one of them was the input and one of them was the output you can't tell which one was which. So humans have a hard time of discerning what was written by AI and what was written by a, a poet, right? <laughs> like, do you think that we're going to get better? Like, do you think that we'll learn how to kind of uh, judge that in the same way that we can now tell photo manipulation? I yeah. I mean, I think, but I think it's, it's kind of a cat and mouse game, right? right. I think there will be It'll get better as we learn. Get better at it. So I think, uh, yeah, it's weird for me to think. And, and I keep thinking about it from the, point of view of 
maybe I'm an alarmist because I feel like I'm a creative person. And this is, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, first, right, first, thing me. For, for first thing came for the drones and I said nothing. And so they, uh, <laughs> uh, but the, no, I, 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 I do feel that, the, that this is, uh, this is something different, um, that, than before. And, 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 and I'm wondering that, you know, if, what was life like, like I, I live in Michigan, the Midwest, and I looked it up about a hundred years ago, um, about, over 75, I think it's like 80 some percent of the jobs in Michigan were in agriculture. And if you told someone then that agriculture jobs in your area will be less than 3% in a hundred years, I think everyone would freak out. Right. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they needed to, right. Cause I think what happened was slowly as these things start happening, that you start finding other, other ways to use the new technologies and then you find other things to do. So, the question is, what what other things can we do <laughs> while computers are doing the creative stuff? And so the the current, I think for the next few years at least, uh, we'll have this idea of a, a, a the human is like a DJ, right? They're they're going to be working with these types of models that will produce beautiful ideas. And so I think there's already books that are being written right now where the artist or the the author is almost using it as a bl- instead of a blank page, it has you know. GPT-3, which is the name of this language model, spit out some, like, continue your story. And they can look at that and say, oh, that, that's a pretty good, I wouldn't have thought of that. And maybe they incorporate that, but it's not going to be... More like a, a, a symbiotic relationship symbiotic. between you and the... Yeah, so kind of a symbiotic, kind of like a, they call a human in the loop. So I think uh, at least for the, the next foreseeable future, uh, unless this next model comes out and it's incredibly more better than this one uh but the but i suspect that will be the the case for a while so we have uh we have a little a little bit of time to figure out what our new lives are going to be gabe so (laughs) i'm a little worried that we're all going to be the cockroaches in the future and that (laughs) the computers are going to backpack on us yeah but it is because i I know that that is uh elon musk's long-term goal and i think as a neuroscientist i I, you know i i and as an engineer as a neural engineer i think the problems that he's trying to solve uh, are actually engineering problems. I think they'll have a pretty good success at that. And so the they're looking at the interface. So to give you just a quick idea about could humans one day be plugged into computers, I'll say this, that the the problem right now with brain-machine interfaces has always been, and for the past like uh, many, many decades, is that when you stick wires, harsh wires, into the brain, you can record neurons but then over time, like these wires start to annoy the neurons that are next to them. And they start building a, like a, it's called a glial scar. So it's like a, it's like scar tissue inside the brain. And that stops the, the neurons from talking to it. And so that, what's cool about that, that is a very engineering problem, right? And I think engineering problems can be handled very well by Silicon Valley startup companies. So I think uh, if they throw enough resources and time at that, they might be able to get that solution. And, and I, Set in on that talk that they gave a couple months ago, maybe about a month ago now, uh, and their and their approach they're taking is absolutely good. So they're gonna they're gonna try to insert the electrodes away from blood vessels so they don't disrupt the blood vessels, and they're and they're doing all the right stuff. And so uh, the question is, will that what will happen once that gets it? So let's say they can get past that. Uh, there's an open question: can, like how do we how do we get access to these to these neural networks, and can we expand our brain? Maybe, maybe you know in in you know in 20 years time, Gabe, you and I will be able to have a conversation and just, I can be citing all of these arts of literature and just have these really deep conversations because I'm able to access not just my brain, but like the entire internet as well. Uh, just, just by thinking about it. But, uh, do I think that's possible? I don't right now, but, um, you think it will be one day. It, it seems like, you know, the, amount of information we've been able. So my dissertation was on brain machine interfaces, putting electrodes into animals and letting them control things. And we were stuck with the motor cortex because that was the easiest for us to control as, as animals. And so I think for getting these other ones, you have to think of other parts of the brain, like memory and hippocampus. And there are people like Ted Berger has been doing hippocampal uh, uh, implants for years and uh, trying to replace memories and stuff like that. So maybe, who knows, maybe, maybe that could be true. Uh, it, it hasn't been proven out in the literature yet, but it, you know, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't bet at it, but I wouldn't be horribly surprised if you can somehow recall other things. 
Well, I'm both excited and terrified to see what's going to come <laughs> in the future. Before we go, um, we have some rapid fire questions for you, Greg. These are not maybe about your work, but just about right, you. I love it. Not my job. Yeah. Okay. So let's do some quick uh, end of the end of the episode rapid fire questions. Who is your favorite sci-fi character, human or uh, machine? Uh, let's see. I would say probably Doc from Back to the Future. <laughs> nice do you see yourself sort of as a modern day doc yeah, I got a little bit I, I, that was a big influence on my life and i think if i look at my lab now it probably doesn't look that much different from what docs do <laughs> are you mentoring <laughs> students and you're going to like one day disappear and travel travel through time yeah exactly they can come back hey yeah, exactly. <laughs> um if you had to be reincarnated as an insect what kind of insect would you want to be reincarnated as oh that uh, by far a dragonfly man those really? things are absolutely lethal yeah they are they are they're yeah the more i learn about them they're cool so they can hunt at 99 percent accuracy like almost they don't ever lose right so that's cool and All like right. to give, to give a comparison i think a lion is like 40 percent and sharks are 30 but they're 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 lower much and the ones that we are most fearful of but can you imagine something that just killed you 99 percent of the time you saw it so wow. that's, I never associate dragonflies with being predators like that, but that's very fascinating. Yeah, no, they, we always just look at them as kind of, Oh, look, but yeah, no, no, cute. they are absolutely killer. Yeah. Wow. All right. Finally, a non uh, machine or bug question. What is your favorite karaoke song? Oh yeah. And I've sang karaoke with you. Uh, <laughs> yes. like, Most, many of my guests have. Uh, I like the old crooners ones, like the, the ones from like the 1950s. Uh, I, can see I, I just like, I just like the, 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 the New Orleans style of, of kind of singing. Sure. Uh, so that's what I go. With. All right. Great. Greg, just thank, thank yeah, you so yeah, much for being, uh, wait, did you say just a gigolo? That's your song? Yeah. Yeah. That's my favorite. Yeah, oh my that's God. My, that's my yeah, yeah. I'm just picturing a dragonfly now singing just a gigolo <laughs> in like a cartoon version. Uh, Greg, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. How do people find backyard brains? Yes, you, just go to, you can go to backyardbrains.com. Uh, and and if, you, if you're looking for a holiday gift idea, you know, that's a perfect stocking stuffer. The, the Robo Roach fits into a stocking perfectly. So wow. There you go. It doesn't come with an actual cockroach, though. <laughs> you got to find the cockroach yourself. All right, Greg. Uh, great to talk to you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of State of the Art. State of the Art is an at-art production originally created by Ethan Appleby. Weston Stevens is our audio engineer extraordinaire, Francesca Rodriguez-Sawaya is our producer, and Abby Asmus is our intern. I'm the host, Gabe BC. You can find us at State of the Art on Instagram or Twitter. Stay tuned for another episode next week.